Are you a doctor? I always have to ask the English vets. Are you, are you, are you a doctor? Officially, Daniel? yes. I mean, I did, because I'm from Germany, I did the doctorate as well. So I was a doctor before I came to the UK. Yeah, there we go. And is it is it Preter, Preter or Preter or how do you... I don't know. Um, well... <laughs> Your own last name. <laughs> I'm Hubert Hempstra. I'm Gerardo Polo. This is The Vet Belt. What's your knee-jerk reaction when I say the words corporate practice? The past few decades have seen some immense changes in how our profession is structured. And now more than ever, there are a handful of big questions on the lips of most people in the profession, regardless of where in the world they are. If you're a new grad, what does a supportive practice look like? Where can I find this practice? Do I go corporate? Do I go private? Do I do an internship? And if you're an owner or a manager... Where are all the vets? How do I attract them? And what about the new grads? What do they want from us? How do I support them appropriately? And how do we keep them? These are exactly the sort of questions that we tackle in this episode. And our guest is just the right person to ask. Dr. Daniel Preta was, at the time of recording this episode, the head of vet development and future vet recruitment for Medivet, a large group of vet practices in the UK. I say at the time of recording because we caught Daniel in the last few weeks of this role. And by the time you're listening to this, he'll be enjoying some well-deserved downtime before he undertakes his next adventure. Daniel worked himself into this role over a 25-year career in the company that started with ownership of one of the founding practices in the group. Now, you don't get to where Daniel was in his career without seeing a few things and learning a few things. Our conversation ranges from recruitment and retention, new grad support programs, transition from single-side practice to group practice, making sure that your personal growth keeps up with the growth of your practice, how the word corporate is shedding some of the negative baggage that it used to carry, the changes that he's seen in his quarter decade in the UK smallest practice, and much, much more. Please enjoy Dr. Daniel Preta. But of course, first I'm going to remind you about our clinical podcasts. But instead of me rambling on about how great they are, here's an email that we received from a subscriber this week. Hi, Hubert and Gerardo. I just wanted to say a massive thanks for putting together such an awesome podcast. I've only been a subscriber for a couple of months, but I've already learned so much. I love the topics you cover and the level of information is perfect for practical in-practice implementation. And you seem to always ask just the right questions that I was thinking. And I love the summary notes. Congratulations on putting together such a great product and helping all us vets out there to be better every day. Love it. From Beck. Thank you, Beck. You've made my week. Everyone else, go and check it out at vvn.supercast.com. That's VVN for Vet Vault Network. Now, back to Daniel. Dr. Daniel Preta, welcome to the Vet Vault. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Gerardo's here. Hey team, it's good to be back again. Daniel, I want to start just to put us in the picture. So exactly who you are and what you do, and then we'll talk about how you got there and, and add questions onto that. But let's start with your, your title and then we'll explain, or you'll explain to us what it means. Your current title is you're the head of vet development and future vet recruitment for Medivet. Is that correct? It's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> is, that, yes. is that accurate? So it, it, it is accurate still. Uh, yeah, I guess what it means is that I'm looking after our new graduates 
that's really what it means. I'm looking after our new graduates and also the next generation of new graduates. So trying to find talent is the other part of the, the role as well. Mm. Before I dive into questions, Hubert, you keep going. I'm going to head down a big rabbit hole about talent pipelines and recruitment. Uh-huh. And- exactly. As soon as you said talent acquisition, <laughs> I was like, well, all right, there's a, that's a, that's a, they gave you a pretty big job, didn't they? It's not the easiest job in the world at the moment. Yes. Yeah. At the moment it is. Yeah, it's difficult, I guess. <laughs> you could call it difficult. Um, recruitment in general, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in in the UK, it is very difficult. And mm. it, it, it is becoming so difficult that in general, not just new grads, you know, in general, is that we, we actually had to close clinics and things at some point even just temporarily because we just didn't have anyone to run the clinic, you know, it's terrible. Um, it's, it's a real crisis and it's not, it's not getting better. And there's certain things that really haven't helped, including Brexit, my mm-hmm. friend Brexit. And that being just more harder for vets from EU and international to come into the, the UK veterinary sphere. Totally. Um, it's it's harder and it's less attractive as well. I mean, the the numbers and of course COVID hasn't helped either, but the numbers have uh, reduced by about seventy to seventy five percent nationwide in, in the UK. Just not just us, not just Medivet, but all sorts of other groups and and in general employment as well. That you know the the, the number of applications have really dropped dramatically. And it's, it's bad for vets in practice, but it's, it's really, really bad for vets, sort of official vets doing meat hygiene and, and export import things and things like that. Because to be quite honest with you, that was not 99% of those vets were uh, vets from abroad. Wow. No UK vet wants to do that job. Like abattoir um, work and, and inspection yeah. of lymph nodes and yes. whatever things. Yes. So it, it was a great way in for European vets because um, you were really, you know, you were taken without a question, really. And then you were in the country and you could start then looking for clinical jobs and things like that as well, more easily get used to the language and what have you. But that's also stopped. And there's a real, there, there, there will be potentially a real food crisis in the UK as well, because yeah, nobody's working in the abattoirs anymore, so it's tricky. On a tangent there, do you reckon it might actually then become a, a para-veterinary role, like a like a, a vet nurse or a tech or a, something like that that's now going to start taking over and then they're supervised by one regional vet as opposed to a vet being in each abattoir or something? Or I think that's exactly what they're looking at because they're just, you know, it needs to keep going. And the only way to do it is to give it to give that role to other people. And I think that's what they're looking at. But it, you know, everything takes time and we're already in that crisis. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a tricky situation. It, it, it says in your bio, you've been with Medivet since um, 1997. It's 25 years within the corporation. But the, 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 what I'm interested to hear is kind of journey from being a vet practice owner and then was it, did you, did the corporate buy a part of it? Did you move with the corporate or like, what was your role in all that? And how was your transition into? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you think, how do you define corporate in the mm. first place anyway? Mm. 
And what is it? What is it really? Uh, when I joined Medivet in 97, we had about 10 clinics. Okay, so we we already it was already not a, a single clinic. It was um, it was a group of ten, and everybody knew everyone. You know, it was like a family, and it was like that for a very very long time. So up to about five years ago, I would have said we're not a corporate. We're not. You know, we have grown. We put clinics uh, on our lists and gradually I didn't know everyone anymore because I couldn't, because we had clinics in areas that I didn't get to. Mm-hmm. You still had contact with most people, but of course, the more people join and the more clinics that join, the less sort of contact you have. But um, I still didn't feel, it didn't feel like a corporate, it didn't, in a way, I guess technically, maybe it wasn't because... Um, it was owned by just a bunch of vets and it was a partnership and it still is a partnership. So majority still owned by veterinary professionals or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. That's changed now. Mm. That's, that's different now, but up to last year, it was hundred percent owned by, by vets. And the partnership model, I think, is quite unique as well because uh, we have the central partners of which we had about fifteen, and then we had the um, we have the branch partners. So, I guess within our model, if you want to be a business owner, you can be that. It's not a franchise; it's a proper sort of traditional partnership, if you want. And that also, for me, you know, sort of removed that corporate structure in a way because it's a partnership, and and all our management team were either vets or nurses so it was for very 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 long time the majority of the time i was with medivet um not a, a corporate in a, in a sense mm. you know that so, so it, should we should we define corporate in that traditional sense as owned by shareholders to a large degree and then people get employed in positions to run practices as managers rather than being owners and partners of the business directly is that in my head, that was sort of what corporate means. Well, what, I, what I feel that Daniel was saying is kind of like this whole vet family. That's like, like a corporate structure, but run by vets, best interests of the business. Um, you know, decisions are made by vets. Still have to make decisions to make sure the businesses are profitable to continue to grow and expand and things, but ultimately not accountable to like a large, I don't know, uh, retirement fund or something like that well exactly exactly that but also who's running the show really and like i said up to about four or five years ago it was all us it was all all the bunch of central partners who are vets and and really were in practice the majority of us were still in practice here and there there were others you know who just gave up practice because it was just becoming too remote and and uh, if you don't keep it up you just you just lose touch really but yeah a lot of us including myself i was i was in practice and not every day of course because you had other jobs but you kept you kept in touch with what's happening on the ground as well and i think that's very very important as well and of course you know at some point you get to size you just can't maintain that anymore and we couldn't maintain it anymore so we had to think about hold on a second we're so big now we need an hr director we need a financial director we need a CEO, we need a board, we need a, an executive board, we need all that structure that bigger organizations have. And so we did. 
And I guess maybe at that point, you could call it, you know, from that point onwards, you could call it a corporate, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. So if you say you couldn't do it anymore, was it a skills thing? Was it a, a capability or skills thing that you went, nah, we need some outside help, just a bunch of vets aren't going to cut it anymore? Uh, pretty much. I mean, if you, you know, we've, and that's the, the interesting thing, really, isn't it? If you If you go into a career like that, you have to learn new things all the time because, you know, you come out of vet school, right? Um, you don't have necessarily a lot of experience in management and, and finance and law and marketing and the whole thing. And they just learn it. You just have to learn it. And, and yes, you get all the odd people in to help until the time comes really when you say, hold on, we need someone in charge of that, you know, whether it's marketing, finance or whatever it might be. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is, is what were some of the skills that you were c completely unequipped for? I'm trying to imagine somebody listening to this going, yeah, I, I'm i in a group of clinics, whether it's corporate or a bigger group, and I want to move into leadership roles or other sort of roles. Mm. What, what were some of the biggest challenges that you personally faced in your, your growth? I think I think leadership and management in general is probably one of the big things because you you sort of you sort of learn things as you go along as a vet i for example had my own clinic for for over 10 years and i had my team and you know around the, the clinic and the team and and you just go along and you learn from your mistakes or you don't um and um and then when it comes to bigger size you just realize you can't just do that you need proper leadership training you need proper management training you need to have a, a management structure in place and there was a lot of learning there was a lot of sort of learning by doing but there was a lot of learning by attending courses and seminars and webinars and whatever else so just wondering how big is the group now how many clinics yeah, I don't even know the answer to that question. I think it's um, <laughs> that's big. We man. must be reaching uh, three hundred and almost four hundred, probably three hundred, late three hundreds, something like that. All right. Well, so that's yeah. that's a mix of um, general practices and specialty practices as well. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for a very, very long time, we were first opinion only, but and small animal only. But, you know, we're really proud of the level of care that we provided, even as a first opinion practice, because we were one of the first clinics, for example, who had their own MRI, CT, blood transfusion units, all that sort of stuff, really. Um, we were doing hip replacements in first opinion practice before most people did that. And then we, we also acquired some referral clinics who do some very fancy work, of course, as well. But it's it's still, the majority are still first opinion. Yeah. So you said you're like, and your role is head of future vet recruitment and, and graduate development program. It kind of implies having new vets come in and then helping them feel more comfortable and confident as quick as possible within the practice. What what kind of things that you've learned over the years with your within that role? Like things that have shifted from what you were doing at the start to what you're doing now things that you have to shift and change? I think that the, the importance of a structure is something that we learned and the importance of support, ongoing support for the graduates. And I find that that has become more and more important from a graduate point of view as well over the last few years. I think 
maybe I don't know when you guys qualified. I qualified a while ago, and back in the day, you know, you just just get on with it. You just yeah, you just you are thrown into the deep end, whether you like it or not. And if you don't like it, well, tough. And in a way, thankfully, this is not the case anymore. At least here, most in most clinics, there's still some, but um, in most clinics, you you do expect quite rightly support as a new grad because you're not the finished product you, you you can do certain things you know certain things but you don't you know you can't just jump in and run a clinic or get on with every single console that you see or every procedure that you come across so that support is crucial and that's that's now expected and i think it's it's the right thing but as an organization sort of supporting graduates, you need to think about, okay, so how do we give that support? And what does it look like? And what's the structure like? And what do they actually want? What do we think they need? And what do they really need? Um, so it's been a process. It's been quite a process over the, the last few years. And I think we've reached now a level where we we have a good product for them um, that they're, they're happy with and, and hopefully do feel supported as well. I'm just going to jump in here quick. I just like what you said there, they're not a finished product. I think for, it like sums it up in a way. Like they, they talk now, how about the first three months after you, the baby's born, you know, like this is talking about babies, right? There's the, there's the, the fourth trimester where they should have been baked inside for longer, but there's a space issues. So we pump them out at, at nine months, but they're probably supposed to really come out at 12 months. But maybe that's the way the mindset shift that, uh, kind of needs to be accepted. It's like they're not a finished product. New grads are not a finished product. And when you said that, it kind of like, like it's all obvious known, but just the language around that almost goes like, okay, yeah, you come into our hands and the next year, year and a half is where you turn into a graduate veterinarian or something like that. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's accepted now by every side. So, you know, if by the grads knowing that they're not. And, and also by the universities as well as the employers that they're not um, the, the finished product. So there is still a lot of work to be done. And I think there are more discussions here in the UK at the moment from, a, from official sides, what that should look like. In fact, um, they introduced a, a complete new scheme last August in 21 called the Vet GDP Advisor Scheme. And that basically means, and it's now a requirement from the RCVS, the Royal College, that if you do employ a new graduate, you have to provide the support needed through the Vet GDP Advisor Scheme. Okay. Yeah. So um, the Vet GDP, the GDP stands for a Graduate Development Program, which is funnily enough the same name as we have for our program, but anyway. Um, it's uh, basically, it means that you have to have a trained advisor and the, uh, that, that's a, a CPD done through the RCBS online. And it's, I think it's 20 hours you have to do and you do have to answer questions. And, and then in the end, you have a certificate and you're an official Vet GDP advisor. And only that person is allowed to train the graduate. Oh, wow. I mean, there are, other, there are other vets who can also train them of course on a daily basis but they have to have that that gdp advisor with them and there's certain requirements that they have to spend at least an hour a week together working they have to spend at least 
a, a day a month having a meeting sort of a reflection meeting and in terms of how the the pro- progress is going and and the learning is going but that's a requirement man if, if you don't have a vet gdp advisor in your clinic you're not allowed to actually employ a, a new grad that's that's really good but it's also wow it makes it hard for when I mean, if you, we talked about the recruitment crisis and if you're a small clinic there's no oh, ways that you can employ somebody as the GP guy. And Absolutely. that takes you off the table of as an employer for a new grad. So you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you of course utilize existing vets for that role. Mm, You've mm. got someone who's reasonably experienced, and they have to be because they've got to be on the UK register for at least three years to become a vet GDP advisor. So okay. if you are a new grad yourself or two years qualified or under three years qualified, you can't, you can't train another vet. So yeah, you've got to have these people in place. Absolutely. And that, that doesn't help with, to have a recruitment crisis at the same time. No, well, I suppose it is a good thing because you have, because I think back to my day, you sound like one of those vets. It certainly wasn't like, as you said, you were thrown in, you were kind of expected to be the finished product. I, I, Rocked up in England as a locum and started locuming. It's like, here, yeah. here I am. Uh, but there's no pride in that because a lot of people struggled a lot. I mean, emotionally and mentally struggled and were completely had their careers ruined for them by that process, by being put in situations that you sh- shouldn't have been in and just went. And only, I mean, you either grew really rapidly uh, or you didn't and you fell off the wagon. So, yeah, it's, it's probably a better approach. I, I think it is. I think it's the right way forwards. And I think what I find as well with the grads these days, unfortunately, that they're sort of get told by the universities that they're not worth as much as they, I'm not putting it, you know, a bit sort of radical here, really, maybe, but um, I think that they get told a lot things like, you know, when it goes beyond Cat's Bay, you need someone with specialist experience and that sort of attitude to say okay let's see that you know let me let me work this out myself is sort of discouraged really um and just to sort of get on with cases and the fear of making a mistake or being sued by the owner um or of being taken to the rcbs in a tribunal sort of thing it, it is it is a big thing now, and um, the, the stuff that I used to do as a new grad, they wouldn't dare to touch because they're just worried they're going to make a mistake or they're going to be sued. So it, I think the learning process itself just just takes longer as well, and you need you need definitely that experienced person next to you because you can't pers- you can't possibly do it yourself, which is a shame. Daniel, do you think, in a way like this, support? And there's definite pros by the whole structure of the program. I can understand that because we've, I've been involved in creating similar kind of graduate programs within our own organization because of the need. But then at the same time, if we then say that you can only go to these places and get this kind of training, and then it's like, does it take away a bit of the accountability on the university and then personal accountability? and control or power or courage from the, the graduate itself, where they kind of come out, like, it's good to understand where you're at, but then also come out and then just not be too scared. Uh, absolutely. I think you, you're you forced into baby steps and, and 
that sort of steep learning curve that I used to have certainly at the beginning. Um, yeah, it's just slowed down a bit. But having said that, I think the graduate, I mean, look, you know, that's the official version from the RCVS since August last year. We, we've had a grad program in place for many, many, many years. And I think it's great to have that. Obviously, we, we just created our own sort of structure in, in terms of step-by-step learning and progress reports and all sorts of things. But I think it's the right thing to do as an employer as well, because you just know it's not going to work. And you might as well help. And I think it's important to, to give that help now. And as I said, it's expected from the student side, from the grad side as well. And if I, if I look back, I'm trying to be critical of my own career or, or, or look at it as an outsider. And the reality is that I did learn fast, but I also learned a lot of bad habits mm. and got stuck in ways of thinking and thought I was doing fine. And, and now, 20 years into my career, I'm relearning things and going, wow, I can't believe I did that for 20 years. <laughs> yes. If I had a structured learning process and somebody mm. be guiding me, I could have avoided a lot of things and and then also probably progressed faster throughout my career because you you hit that if it's self-learning you hit a plateau much faster uh, or even it's not even a plateau like you actually go mm. down a little bit yes. and if, to have somebody to guide you through that uh, it can only be good it can only be good i think i agree with that then you talked before about the concerns and risks of litigation and all that kind of stuff and um, as a large practice group, I'm sure you would you know, hear or come across or at least someone, area managers are tackling cases that go to RCVS or, or go move forward into some kind of you know, litigation or something. But is the concern actually kind of matching the, the, the risk? It's kind of like, like the example I was thinking about, it's like people coming to work, being concerned or working, getting worked up or preparing themselves for difficult clients today and then almost kind of like getting, like they have this bias around it and then they forget that maybe once every two days they might have a truly difficult, or once every three days, maybe once a week you might get a truly difficult client, right? Or you might have people who are concerned or stressed and have financial issues, which isn't isn't difficult, but it's like, like it's almost hypersensitive or hyper-aware and this bias makes us concerned or negative bias makes us look out for it. And then the actual risk, we don't have perspective on it. I, I, yes. I mean, I have to say that though expectations have risen over the years, definitely from the client's point of view, you know, <laughs> the things that I got away with um, 20 years ago, you wouldn't get away with probably so easily anymore. Not that I was negligent or or you deliberately made mistakes or something, but it's now, I think you're watched much more carefully. I think that's just a fact, to be honest. By the, by the clients? Yeah. At least in the UK, that's the case. I mean, and, and will they take it further quite quickly? Will it go to the college or? Um, I think you will get a complaint quicker. Okay. Whether it's taken further or not is another question. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But in terms of complaints, they have certainly gone up. And not because we've decreased our level of care, but because people are just expecting. And to be quite honest with you, I don't think that the SuperVet series on television and other SuperVets necessarily help an awful lot. 
because you just get a completely wrong image of what a vet is supposed to do and can do. Anyway, that's a different kettle of fish, I guess. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's definitely a long way away from James Harriet, <laughs> who, who was the previous model for what you should expect from your vet. <laughs> well, yes. And he kept me going through my studies. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're not alone. <laughs> so all these things we're talking about, I mean, it, it takes a lot of back-end to provide that to your new grads or to your, you know, a lot of HR and a lot of management and stuff. Is this why we are moving towards group practices or call it corporate practices? Are we, are we moving in that direction? I mean, it certainly seems to be. I feel like Australia's 10 years behind in a lot mm. of things vet-wise with the UK. Is, is that still the direction that the UK is heading, that it is becoming conglomerates or corporations? Yeah, I, I mean, it's been like that for many, many years, many years, you know, 20 years. Um, and yes, of course, as um, as groups form and merge and whatever else, I think, what is it now, 55% in the UK are okay. uh, within the, the sort of corporate world, if you want. We still have 45% independence as well. And I think there will always be a place, and I hope there will always be a place for independence as well. But yes, I think there, there are certain definite advantages of a of a bigger sort of network. And really for us at the beginning, it was just about being a network, not a clinic sort of standing on its own, but having this vast <laughs> pool of knowledge as well of, of, of your colleagues really that you can tap into. And we, we constantly have email discussions still or on, on different platforms um, about clinical cases. You know, I've got this weird x-ray. Can everybody have a look, please? Uh-huh. And you send it to... 400 vets it's it's very powerful very very powerful and that exchange the clinical exchange is between the vets and the group is is constant and it's it's very enriching i think for everyone but there are so many other advantages as well like like having a career path as well. I mean, if you look at me, I would have just stayed a vet as well. It would have been absolutely fine. But so I just went into this path because of the size that we have as well. And it wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And there are so many different roles within the organization as well now that we have in terms of management, teaching, clinical governance, you know, all sorts of things that you just wouldn't have um, or that opportunity you wouldn't have. Um, in a in a standalone small animal practice, um, you said there about pr- career progression, and I've definitely seen that with my own career. A part of it uh, for for at least I suppose myself and Alex, when, or even Hubert, I suppose, uh, you kind of forge your like at the early stages of a, a large business, you kind of see the space, and then you start filling the space, right? As a as a business owner, and then you get to a particular size where you need depth. You need other people to start taking on things like training on the floor, training regional trainers or something like that. So you, we, we start to develop a talent pipeline of veterinary professionals who are progressing out of you know, clinical into more management and leadership. Like is, that, is that training and those programs, are they created by yourselves or and is, is that something that um, – Medivet as an organization or a company fund or facilitate or sponsor? Like, how have you guys tackled the 
developing talent outside of just clinical veterinarians. Hmm. No, absolutely. We have an L&D department um, and th that's exactly what they're looking at is about upskilling people. And, and, and that's not just for the vets and, and the nurses. We have training programs in place for, for, for most roles um, that we have, all roles really that we have. And whether that's, you know, upskilling your receptionists or whether that's a more senior vet going into management. And we do that all in-house, really. And of course, there's a big budget for that as well. Uh, Gee, have you got a question? I'm sort of waiting for you, but I've got a question. <laughs> oh, okay. and I was just going to say there's a big budget for that. Um, in, in, is it because if you create the program, then it's scalable in-house and it's also then somewhat tailored for uh, your the, you know, the language and the culture and that more tailored towards what you were wanting to expect and the talent that you want to develop that's in alignment with where Medivet wants to go or is it just there was no other I don't know, or training organizations which really delivered the product you were looking for so you just created your own? No, I think we always wanted to make it tailor-made to our own needs, really. And if you pick something off the shelf, you just don't know if it's going to be the right thing for you. And because the vet industry is a big industry, but it's not as big that you have, you know, all sorts of different providers for all the different needs that you have, you just create it yourself. And um, we have some fantastic programs and some fantastic people and learning providers as well in-house in, in um, and it's great. I think that's the way, the right, right, right thing to do. David, this, I don't know if it's changing. I think it probably is changing, but certainly 10 years ago in Australia, uh, corporate or big group practice was almost a, I wouldn't say it was a dirty word, but there was a negative association to those outside of it. I certainly know a lot of people who work in big groups who really love it, but are there still, or were there any major misconceptions about working in or working for a big group versus just independent clinics? Absolutely. Um, and I think that always will be the case, but I have to say it's changed dramatically over the last sort of few years, three, four, five years, um, where people just can see, and it, it was more historical sort of, even at vet school, I think that people were said, oh, be careful of the corporates and the, you know, the, the devils and, and they're not, you know, you don't go and work for them and whatever else. And, and it was just taken on the chin and nobody, you know, nobody asked the question really. <laughs> it was just there, that sort of thing. And that's changing now because people can see the benefits. They can see, for example, that graduate program that we have in place is, is a year long and there's, there's a structure to it. There's lots of modules, you know, wet labs, all sorts of things. You just couldn't do that possibly in a standalone small animal practice, um, independent practice. It's different, you know. It's, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but there are benefits for the graduates. There are benefits for, for all the staff, really, in a way that um, it just can't be ignored anymore. And I think more and more people see that now. And also... The, the sort of official vet world, if you want, you know, the, the universities and other sort of governing bodies and what have you, they, they see that and they, they know they have to work with, with the bigger groups. Otherwise, the, there's no one to work with. So, so that's, um, that sort of view of, you know, don't touch them, they're bad, has not, not gone 
but it's it's much much better now yeah i wonder where that stemmed from maybe it was the uh, more overt focus on on business or profit or at least a perceived focus on that by these bigger groups and people and people thought yeah they all they care about is the money they're not going to care about you as a person you're just going to be a number you just have to churn out the bucks in the building of, of your business in your journey in that were there things that you think that the corporate clinics or the big group clinics did wrong and that has changed oh, were there, were there oh mistakes God, yeah. that they made where you went well we, that that we shouldn't have done that we should have done that differently absolutely absolutely there were lots of mistakes and <clears throat> you know it's it's i guess one of the disadvantages of, of of a bigger group is that you know that sort of concept of having an immediate boss is not there necessarily so you work in an independent practice, you work with your boss, you have a problem, you're not happy with about something, you go and talk to the boss. Um, in a bigger group, it, that's a bit more complicated because you might work in a practice, but you're not working with your boss. You're not necessarily working with your regional director, which is you know the, the sort of senior structure in a, in a certain area of the country. You see them, of course, but you don't see them every day. And, and that also could create this sort of remote boss syndrome in a way that it's like, oh, they're bastards. They just want us because who's they, you know, is you don't you don't have necessarily someone immediate sort of next to you to talk about issues and problems. And that has always been the biggest challenge. And uh Yes, and there have been mistakes. Of course, there have been mistakes about you know looking after staff in a way that you couldn't do because you weren't in the building with them. Yeah, it's that lack of relationship, the loss of the, mm. the intimacy and relationship that makes it harder. Mm. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a big rabbit hole. It's a big rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, same question about things that you've learned during the process, but more specifically about the the mentoring support thing, because again that. You guys have been doing that for a long time, having a, a new grad support or a recent grad, grad support system, and, and but it's brand new for lots of businesses now. What didn't work? Were there things that didn't work that you tried? And then on the flip side, are there things that you're looking at now that goes, oh, this is the ticket, this really works? I guess the one thing that grads really do, and we, we sort of touched on that at the beginning as well, is that they want support for longer and this is why we actually extended the initial graduate program of ours was was only three months three to six months okay and we realized it wasn't enough because it was needed for longer and it was needed from our view and it was needed from from the grads view as well so we extended it to 12 and and the funny thing is you know we did we did that probably about five years ago now and um the VET GDP program that's come in from the RCVS is exactly that. It's it's also about a year. And uh, I guess it's sort of accepted now that that's the sort of time frame that a new grad needs at the beginning to have the support for. So that was a big thing, really, that, you know, we had, we had grads who were unhappy because the support stopped. And then we had to change. We had to change that scheme in a, in a big way. And it was a big way because um, it was a complete restructure, really. If, <clears throat> like, I, 
for me, there is always, there's only so much that we can do in terms of support, mentoring, um, clinical training and development, all those kind of things. And my feel is that, you know, they, they, all veterinarians, new or old, whatever, you want to feel confident, right? Especially with new grads. They want to feel confident and they want to feel confident quick. And then the, you, you've got to create a space where they could fail safe or, you know, they give things a go and things. But what I look for and then and what I, I suppose I look for now in interns and new grads now is a, a demonstration or a, an understanding that encourages or accepting that you're not necessarily going to be confident and confidence may not be the right thing to keep on chasing after. Because if you constantly feel like as if, you know, it's okay to not feel so confident and give things a go, then that's more powerful than this end state that confidence, which is elusive and probably never going to happen. Um, is there like traits or is there kind of things that your, your recruitment team look for in order to, you know, help find the, the right graduate? It's very tricky, isn't it? Because um, it's a fine balance, I find. Um, you also get the other extreme of, of graduates or vets in general who think they know <laughs> mm. and they don't. And, um, and that's when it becomes dangerous as well. And you have to be very careful that you sort of know and, and, and realize where they are, uh, on which end. Because if they are on that end that you just described, you certainly should encourage them and say, no, 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 you do it. I'm here, I'm watching, but you do it. And you do the next one and you do the next one. Um, because, you know, on the other extreme, you have those graduates who are just scared of doing everything um, themselves or anything themse themselves. I, I remember working with a vet who was maybe eight or nine years qualified but she always has worked with a senior vet holding her hand. And when the senior vet was suddenly gone, she was lost after eight or nine years of experience. And that's, a, that's sad. So it's, it's that balance, really. I think it's so important to nurture them, to encourage them, but also to realize, oh, no, hold on, no, <laughs> you, don't, you don't know exactly what you're doing. So let's do this together. And next time you can show me how you do it yourself. And, and I think it's, it's important to, to know your graduate. And this is why I think um, the graduate program with a dedicated mentor and all that sort of thing, who knows their graduate, and after a certain amount of time, obviously, and, and realizes where they are and, uh, and what they can give them and what they can't give them and, you know, how much encouragement um, they need and, or not. Um, yeah, so that relationship is very important. So you alluded in our chats before that there's a next chapter for you personally. Are, you, are we allowed to talk about it or is it, a, is it private? Is it not, is it not for are the podcast? Are we allowed to talk about it? Um, <laughs> uh, there's not much to say. I mean, I, um, yeah, so it's been 25 years almost and we just sold the business. It's not a, it's not a secret. Uh, we sold it last year and I think it's a great time for me and some of the vast majority of my colleagues, my partners, ex-partners, to look into the future for something else. And um, I've got lots of ideas, but I haven't got any plans. <laughs> that sounds super that, exciting. I was going to say, that's, <laughs> yes. a, that's a good space yeah. to be in. I think so. And it's quite scary as well, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've got 
what a, what is it now? Three weeks left. Yeah. You caught me right at the end, but it's getting like okay, what exactly am I going to do? Mm. But um, it is exciting, but it's also like twenty five years is my career basically. That's it. You know that I spent ninety eight percent of my career at Minibet. Mm. Um, so it's it's scary. It's scary, you know, but exciting at the same time. You're not going to start a, a new small neighborhood clinic, <laughs> independent clinic somewhere. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I would do that again. No, I'm, not, no, I'm not at that stage in my life, I think. <laughs> I'm curious, you've had an excellent view of the profession and you've seen it change and, and in the UK, how it's changing. Where do you see us as a profession in, in a decade from now? Is anything going to be different or are we just heading in the same direction? Gosh, um, the crystal ball question. Uh, I think we are probably going to head into the same direction for a little bit longer. For example, if we talk about corporate versus independent, there will always be a place for independence, mm -hmm. and that's a good thing. I think we are heading towards much more flexibility in terms of employment as well. We have to because of the the crisis that we have, and hopefully that flexibility will increase retention as well, which should also help the uh, recruitment crisis. And there has to be more done to tackle that recruitment crisis because the way it's going, it can't continue. Whether there will be more clinics or not, it doesn't matter. It's already at a point where we just don't have enough staff, full stop. And... Um, we won't be able to provide the service to, to the clients. So people will have to put their heads together. And it's already happening here in the UK on a big scale. What can be done to, well, A, produce more vets, I guess. And that's, again, you know, here in the UK, we've got another two or three vet schools opening up. But then also keep them in the profession. Keep them happy. That's, that's going to be the big, big challenge. Yeah. That's excellent. Let's wrap with our, our standard questions. Are you a, a podcast listener? <laughs> I saw the question on the, um, on the list and I thought, mm, I'm not really. Um, you should ask the question. My wife, she's a big podcast listener. There's a few things that I listened to in the past uh, that I really find interesting. It's mainly many historical stuff. I've, I really like history. And mm. there is a great one, actually. It's called In Our Time with Melvin Braggs. It's a BBC series and he, I don't know how long he's been doing it. It must be decades. Um, and of course, you know, now it's on podcasts as well and the BBC Sounds, BBC Sounds it's called. And it's great because he's talking with experts on all sorts of things on, you know, from the, I don't know, from the Zulus to the ancient Greeks to the French Revolution. It, it's just fascinating and it's, it's easy to listen to as well. Have you come across, this is the most, the biggest history podcast, um, might not be your style, but have you come across Hardcore Histories? An American guy called Dan Cardlin, who does um, these epic four or no. five hour episodes on uh, also history from right. history of the Mongolians and there's some, some world war episodes. Really okay. good, really engaging. Like I would, Okay. he only yeah. releases an episode a year almost because it's so massive. 
And when it's out, I'm like, oh, it's out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's five days of my life gone. Oh, really? All, okay. All I'm doing is listening to is the age. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you for the tip. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send you a link to it. All right then. Yeah, and great. then this, the, our last question, our wrap-up question is really highly appropriate to you. It is about talking to a bunch of all the world's veterinary new grads. So this is kind of, sounds like this has been your job for the last decade is to talk to veterinary new grads. If you could give them just one message, what would it be? Gosh, uh, have fun. I mean, really, just see the fun and the enjoyment in the job. I think, I think that's that's crucial. Just to really try and enjoy every moment and don't be scared. Be adventurous, but not too adventurous. And um, and just enjoy it. And just try really enjoy every moment. I know there's always moments where. You think, oh my God, what did I get into here? But um, just just take every day as it is and try and enjoy. Have fun. Daniel, that was awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good luck with whatever the next chapter is. I'm super <laughs> excited to hear what you what you yeah. said, lot. I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> You know that vet in the practice who just seems to know their shit? The one everyone asks for help with their tricky cases. You can be that vet. Check out our clinical podcasts at vvn.supercast.com.